Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this first of two podcasts, looking at value versus growth investing, Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, talks to Roberta Barr, Head of Value Team ESG and Fund Manager at Schroders, about what defines value investing the challenges of identifying value stocks, and what drives a successful value investor. Welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This week, I'm again being allowed to sit briefly in Sarah's chair. I think that's the next two as it goes. And these next are a couple of a continuation of a series of interviews with some of our superstar fund managers from outside Barclays uh, that we get to help run run your money. Uh, It's not as easy as that, as you know well. We have dedicated teams scouring the world day and night for these investment galacticos. The plan is to talk to Roberta first on some of the things she is seeing, and then I can cover off some of the latest from markets this week. Now, as As you know well by now, we are something called style neutral in our multi-asset class funds and portfolios. You can think of styles like categories of investments, a little like industry sectors that pertain to certain types of investment, so growth, value, quality, etc., etc. Now, these styles wax and wane in their popularity over time. Unpredictably, as it goes, the industry's been trying to uh, desperately trying to turn that into predictably for many decades, but so far without that much kind of plausible effect, I think. Anyway, but Roberta, our guest today, operates in the value part of the market. So first of all, thank you for joining us and welcome. And let's start off with an explanation, if it's okay, Roberta, with what value actually means. So what is value investing? I guess that's my first question. Of course. um, What is value investing? Well, I guess sort of super, super simply, it's buying the cheapest parts of the market. So we tend to say roughly the cheapest 20% of the market on various different valuation metrics. So different ways for measuring how much a company is actually worth. You're looking for the cheapest 20%. So that's the kind of the simple version of it. In reality, it's a lot more about what you're going to have to do to go into that cheapest 20% is buy the companies that no one else wants to buy. So these are the companies that everyone else has put on such low multiples because they just can't stomach holding it. So you're going to have to do the unpopular thing. A lot of the time you're going to look like an idiot, but that's kind of the point of value investing. The point is that you're buying things which are so ridiculously bad companies that people don't value it for what it's worth, which is not a lot. They value it for half what it's actually worth because they get so carried away with the the negative news flow, the you know the doom and gloom narrative around the company, and they slash down its price just because they're not willing to even look at it what it could be worth. And does that mean when you're sort of looking at value stocks, you're never really looking at quality businesses, you're never really looking at businesses with defendable moats and quality management? Or is it more that sort of, you know, these are just things that are out of, are out of fashion for one reason or other, or a bit of both? Honestly, it's a bit of both. It's surprising how quality it can go in that cheapest 20% of the market. And actually, the sort of things which people will turn away from despite them actually being pretty good businesses underneath. So if you just just take something like a bank, for example, mm-hmm. an unnamed UK bank that I look at, they're saying they're going to be achieving, you know, 14, 15% a return on tangible equity over the next few years, but they're trading way below tangible book value today. Mm-hmm. So you know, that sort of thing just There's doesn't... It's a mismatch, yes. It, it, it's a mismatch even when you account for interest rates or uncertainty or, mm-hmm. you know, regulation that might come down the line. It's just it's just far off what you'd expect. And it's definitely something that we look at the quality of the business because 
that is going to affect what in the long term the company is worth. Mm. But often the, the quality is you know, removed from the price that people are paying. And that, that gets to a bit we can come to in a little bit. I guess there's a sort of huge behavioral element in some of these pieces where investors have been burnt previously by a sector and therefore yeah. that gets that it makes it much harder for them to see the value within yeah. uh, within a particular franchise. So I guess just sort of the first bit, first question that came up from in my head about sort of, you know, as you were talking there is, does that mean that all of that kind of sifting through some of the most unpopular parts of the market, that must make require much more in terms of research effort in some way than just looking through quality companies because you've got to get a lot more comfortable that you are right and the right market is wrong. Yeah, absolutely, because you're going to have to have a lot of conviction behind what you're buying because you're going to get a lot of questions for why on earth is that in your portfolio. So for for a start, we tend to rely only on our own research on the team. Mm -hmm. And because what we're doing is so different from the rest of the market, that means that we've had to build our own process, which we can follow time in, time out, and we can trust to sort of lead us to the sort of value companies which we want in our portfolio. So not value traps that are that are sort of cheap for, for good reason and are never going to recover, but instead companies which genuinely are worth more than they're trading for. So in terms of resources for every company that we look at, I have to have built my own model. I have to have answered what we call uh, the seven red questions. So these are basically the seven key reasons why we think a company is most likely to be a value trap. So these are kind of the the key tests we have to do, the key, the most likely weak links mm. of the company. I have to do that for each company I'd like to hold. And then my co-managers also have to look at the right, company, so do their own model, yeah. do the seven red questions themselves. And then we come to the table at the end we go through each and every line of our models. And I point out these are at least 10 year historic models. So these are in depth. You can just imagine the sort yeah, of thing yeah, we yeah. do on a value team. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. is extraordinarily yes. geeky. Yeah. So we're running through each and every line. We're running through each and every part of how we're valuing the business. So you know how we've come to the enterprise value today. So that's obviously a combination of the market capital of the company, the debt, the cash they hold, pensions, provisions, adjustments for you know regulatory fines that might come down the line. Adjustments for working capital, it, it goes pretty um, fun models, pretty, pretty fun models, super yes. fun models. Yeah. So we go through that together. We then go through the seven questions together, um, discuss our sort of investment theses and um, to buy a company into one of our portfolios. We all have to agree that this company has got an attractive risk reward profile to make it an attractive value company. Fascinating. And yeah, the benefit of that is firstly, we love doing it. (laughs) (laughs) Secondly, you have to. Exactly. (laughs) Secondly, you know, you're so prone to everyone. Every human is prone to making mistakes, especially in these companies which have gone through really tough times. So you know, the accounting might be a little bit haywire. It's quite easy to miss certain bits. So actually having that double, triple check is super important. And thirdly, companies in our portfolios do go bust. That's the point of value investing is you're holding things right on the edge. And to go in for a stock idea to go badly, to point a finger and say that was your fault is not sort of fostering the environment that it's going to take for us to be able to yeah, avoid those behavioural biases. And how much sort of does industry knowledge come into it? So for instance, you know, because a lot of that understanding about whether this is just a value trap can come down to the fact that it's in an industry that's yeah. just yeah. moved on or has been moved on or superseded by technology. So how much you do a lot of work, obviously, at the single stock level, yeah. but where do you get your inputs on the sort of wider industry and some sort of, you know, macro strategic thoughts on yeah. what lives what dies yeah well so 90 percent is bottom-up stock like is this company 
you know, in isolation cheap. But, you know, absolutely right. We have to look at the industry sectors, regions as well. Mm. So the first thing to say is we're all generalists on the value team. So none of us are sort of sector specialists, which is one of the joys of the job. You look at everything. It means you're not biased into having, you know, favorites in your sector. You're not biased into always having to have some bull case within your sector, just yes. have something in, oh, yes, in a portfolio. Yes. But it does mean that we have to rely on things like working within Schroders. So working within a company where there are so many sector experts, you know, all it takes is for us to go pop over to another desk and have, you know, an hour, two hour discussion on the industry. We can hear all of that industry expertise. We can challenge um, the sort of the sector specialist with our views. And, you know, we're not, we're probably not going to change our models because of what they're saying, because it's not going to change the isolated is this stock cheap, but it is going to help answer some of those seven questions like, is this company in structural decline? You know, are the margins that we're forecasting, are they reasonable for the sector? And we do also have actually quite a few uh, quant tools within Schroders, which we can use as well to help. So things like base rates, checking how this company is looking on various different sort of profit margins or uh, fundamental ratios compared with the industry, how that's changed over time. Yes. You amazing. name it. Yes. 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 Amazing, it's a beautiful model. Yeah. Yes. Yes. More beautiful models. And I guess, you know, like, so you've hinted at a couple of things there. And I think one of the sort of, from a general, a style generalist perspective, one of the things that's, I think, impressive about style specific investors is the idea of patience, because you can have long periods of time where your style is out of fashion for one reason or another it was only a few years back when people were wondering if growth investing was finished now more recently it's been the turn of value to have its kind of obituary prematurely in my opinion penned by the commentary i guess the question is how, how do you keep going stick to your knitting how do you sort of stick to your process when you're having long periods where investors aren't rewarding the types of stocks you're looking at but you're still kind of convinced that there's a yeah. As a buy case. So I think first you have to be steadfast in your view and your belief in the style that you're investing in. So, you know, I'm a value investor. I've been a value investor for years. I love value investing. It's the only thing I've got my money in. It's the only thing I ever will have my money in. <laughs> and it's the only thing I'm ever going to sort Committed. of push with clients. Exactly. Yes. And I, I don't base that just on, you know, because I've chosen it, I love it. I've based that on, you know, academic evidence over the years. I've based it on testing my love of value, going to different teams, trying out different investment styles and knowing that I'll always come back to the long-term history. This is the only decade where value has actually underperformed growth, yes. for example, as of relying on the fact that you know, actually I'm willing to put all of my money into something which I see the academic evidence for and I'm not going to be swayed by sort of short-term shifts. And having that sort of personal belief, I think, is really helps your patients because yeah, yeah, it's something I you're bet. going to believe in yourself. And, and, and your process, have you found that sort of coming under strain? Do you sort of like, because when there's moments, you know, years even, where you sort of turn around and say, oh gosh, you know, am I looking at the right things? Am yeah. I, how do you sort of, is that something you get from the reassurance of the team or the senior management? I mean, we've had your senior management in and, sort yeah. of, you know, he obviously talks having been a practitioner himself, he seems yeah. to understand that these kind of fallow and boom periods sort of happen. So there's a, is that part of the sort of patience? Absolutely. Being part of Schroeder's, Pete Harrison set up the value team himself when he yes. was the, the head of equities. Having sort of that management that understands what we're doing, that understands that actually we need to have the bad times in value to sort of unlock the value premium, if you will. It's all part of the, part of the emotional journey yes. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Not, risk for reward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, over, over the pandemic, we had some awful, 
awful performance. We never had a tap on our shoulder mm. saying, hey, you know, if you thought about adding a bit more US or whatever to, yeah, your, yeah, to your portfolios, yeah. that never happened because they trusted us that we knew what we were doing. We believed in our process, mm. which is another point that you mentioned. And our clients, importantly, knew what we were doing, knew why what was going on was going on and trusted clients aren't buying us to to waver or get uncertain about what we're doing they're buying us for that value exposure exactly and whatever comes with that and it's so important that we stick to our knitting stick to what we say on the tin and continue steadfast in our value beliefs have that patience because if hindsight can tell us anything, it's that people don't know when yes. value is going to rally. Yeah. I always get asked the catalyst question. So if you're thinking of asking that, Will, forget it. Well, here we go, straight yeah. into that. You know, it's impossible to say. I don't think I could have predicted any of the previous value right. rallies. And when it comes, it comes fast. Often people say, right, when we see it, we'll tilt into it. Yes. Reality is, reality is, is, is far too late. Yes. And it's when value is doing bad is when you actually get the great great value opportunities in the market yeah so no it's just that you're you're, you're so right i mean and this is what we preach a lot of sort of you know that the last 10 years can contain a very misleading view of what might come in the future yeah Um, and that actually even if you go back 30 years you know there are there's a very specific macroeconomic conditions that could not be repeated in the future and actually we could be heading into something entirely different yeah. uh, and actually from a timing perspective the point that we've been making you know in line with what you're saying is that these things are very hard to predict but there is quite a reasonable assumption i think at the moment that we are heading into a world a macroeconomy which doesn't look much like the pre-2019 world where there might be more inflation higher real interest rates all sorts of things that might be yeah. conducive to greater value outperformance. So yes, let's well, hope. I would agree with you. <laughs> yes, obviously. Um, a biased observer, <laughs> but a valuable one all the same. So yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd also say that we've been having a lot of questions recently about AI, about all these sort of paradigm shifts in technology, which are going to mean that the world's never the same again. And yeah, absolutely. I don't think the world's ever going to be the same again, because it's amazing all these things that technology are doing, what they're going to do to companies, the disruption they're going to cause. What I would say is the valuations that they're being put on are ridiculous. Yeah. You know, if you look at every sort of previous paradigm shift in the world, so you know the creation of cars, of the internet, you know, the, the tech boom. Yeah, the internet changed the world. They're absolutely right with the narrative, but it was an awful investment. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and no, I, true. I think that that's such an important thing to remember is that just because there are these exciting things, that doesn't actually mean that there's going to be a long-term no, shift. I think that's right. And, and so we've been having this, you know, like sort of, you know, in a gold rush, you apparently buy the picks and shovels, hence you buy NVIDIA and all these kind of yeah. other things. But again, if past is prologue, it's the users of the new technology, mm. not necessarily the makers, that the ultimate big beneficiaries. And to that extent, I guess I, I, that would tilt more to me, to some of those companies that would be boosted by the efficiency gains that comes with large language models and having those visibility on your... Yeah. And that's my personal view anyway, which conforms with yours, <laughs> which is neat. Um, just just to finish off, just to round up on the week just gone. So I think more signs of persistence on inflation data. So you saw core CPI in the US and wages in the UK, two indicators that were not quite done with this fight. So there are some expectations that you might see a pause in US interest rates, but more to come in the UK. We are still, I think, in that submarine movie where the submarine standing for the global financial system is forced ever lower in the 
fight against inflation. The rivets are creaking alarmingly in places. Regional banks remain one uh, leak that has sprung, but I think we probably need, or we think we probably need to be prepared for others. Recession is still the talk of most in the town, outside of what many hope are the death throes of this latest populist insurgency in the developed world. For the former, there are certain, certainly plenty of reasons to be bracing for impact. You simply don't see the world central bank raise, uh, the world central banks uh, raise interest rates, or the US in particular, raise interest rates by 500 basis points in a couple of months very often. That is as close to central bankers as central bankers can really get to putting a brick wall in the path of the economy. However, there are also reasons to keep an open mind. So the services side of the economy is now more important and recovering from the unprecedented blow of the pandemic and pandemic era policy policies, and that's conferring some resiliency. So-called excess savings in the US uh, private sector are still material, albeit smaller than last year, obviously. And there's still also this incredible factory construction boom going on in the US, which some people are pointing to recent kind of legislative successes as an instigating factor. China's still looking precarious, as we discussed in last week's podcast, so much so that the talk of government stimulus has ratcheted up a notch again. All in all, stay calm. Recession or not, the medium term outlook is brightening thanks to new technologies arriving on the scene, which you know uh, we, Roberta and I have just discussed. The message from today's and every podcast is that you need to stay humble on where those technologies are going to boost returns the most. But otherwise, thank you very much, Roberta. Thank you, listeners. And we shall speak to you very shortly. All investments can fall as well as rise in value and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.